and welcome to the inaugural episode of Grumpy Old Ben's. I am Darren O'Neill coming to you live from a bunker deep in the heart of middle America, just outside of Chicago, Illinois, where the smell of barbecued ribs and gunfire are wafting through the air. Across this big virtual desk we like to call the interwebs is my co-host, Sir Ryan Bemrose, who is angrily waiting for this long introduction to end are we done from yet? his location somewhere on America's left coast, or at least that's what he says. I'm not really sure. On today's show, we're going to be talking about social networks, over-socialization, and why they're creating global communities that just don't work. How you doing, Ryan? I am doing great. I am over-caffeinated and over-socialized right now. Well, over-caffeinated is good. You bring a little excitement. Absolutely. At least that's the plan. The concept of this show, Grumpy Old Ben's, is we figured out the, the statement we want to go with is finding a reason to yell at somebody. <laughs> for some people, that's hard. I think for us, it's a Monday. How do you feel? I am doing great. It is sunshiny, so all of the blinds are closed, and I am in my, my lazy boy studio. You in the, you in the recliner, kicking I, back, I, relaxing? I, I am. And I guess, Does that help pacify the rage that goes on with being a grumpy old Ben? Oh, not remotely. So <laughs> do we have to, I think we have to explain the name, right? Grumpy old Ben's. I, I think we do. Tell us where that comes from. Cause it's, I, well, I'm still not really sure if this is a no agenda thing or not, which is the greatest podcast in the universe. It is, uh, the, it comes from the no agenda community where, uh, a, an IT guy is a dude named Ben and, uh, if, if you go back and listen to one of the No Agenda Primer shows, they're going to, uh, they have a clip where uh, one of the uh, people testifying against Congress, against testifying to Congress in the IRS scandal of a couple of years back, maybe 2014, there was a person testifying from the IRS. And I don't remember her name, but uh, she was on the defensive and uh, the, the congressperson said uh you know do do you know why this happened and she said well it was it was our it guy who did it all and uh says uh do you have a name and she says well i i I only interacted with these people in passing i don't remember i think his name may have been ben and uh so in the no agenda show any it guy now is is just a dude named ben does it show that i'm a little too ingrained in the no agenda culture where i just after hearing that enough assumed that people all over the place just call tech guys dude named Ben's like it was been something that was around from Silicon Valley way back <laughs> and make sure it, I have a problem. It, it, it is in fact not. Uh, it, it yeah, it came from it came from a clip, uh, and uh, the the congressperson was saying so derisively. So uh, a, a guy named Ben did this. A dude named Ben. And uh, it's a great clip, which we would have been uh, much better off in this intro if we had the clip. Well, we could always add clips. That's the beauty of the Internet. But that's where Ben's comes from. I'm assuming otherwise people might have been listening to the show. If you've never followed the No Agenda show at all, which some people I'm sure haven't, you wouldn't know what that meant. But that's where, you know, grumpy old men became grumpy old Ben's. My name's not Ben. Your name's not Ben. But we're both Ben's in the fact that we have a background in technology. I think we have a better understanding of technology than most people, and that's the kind of viewpoints and topics that we're going to be talking about on the show, which a lot of it's going to revolve around technology, 
that kind of uh, the way the world is changing with all the new digital assistance and all of the overreaching of governments trying to tell you you can and cannot do certain things online. Oh, yeah. We're going to try to bring a older tech guy look at what's going on and try to explain it. Oh, yes. So with 15 plus years of experience as a professional computer programmer, I I am up to date on all of the latest devices and Internet of Things, and not a one of them will ever be seen in my household. So you know how they all work, but you just don't want to use them. Well, as in anybody who knows how they work will not want to use them. That's that's we'll we'll be covering that on multiple episodes, I'm sure. Well, Rick, and once you know how the sausage is made, that's how things start going horribly, horribly wrong. But that's where I think you really bring a great perspective on all this stuff, knowing how the coding works, knowing how these systems work, knowing the possibilities that exist in machines that are starting to be installed everywhere from thermostats, the smart devices, your cell phone, knowing the technological abilities of these things where a lot of people might go, well, that could never happen you're the guy that knows exactly how it can happen and how likely it is for it to happen. Well, I understand the technology behind it. And uh, I, as, as a professional software tester, it was always my career to look at a system and determine exactly how it was going to fail. And then poke and prod it until it fails so that I could go to the developer of the system with a smirk on my face and say, ha, your stuff sucks. Here's why. You need to fix it. So that was the perfect job for you. So that was actually your job, which was to take. It was extremely satisfying. <laughs> so your job was to take the code and find where somebody else screwed up. Exactly. That, that, and, and you can't just turn that off. That's been, I mean, long before I got into computers, that's what I do. You know, I would, uh, I would walk into class in third grade and the teacher would be like, we are going to build animals out of glue and cardboard paper. And I would immediately explain why this was a stupid idea and it didn't work. And uh, I didn't get paid for it back then, but uh, I'm assuming your grades may have failed for it at this. Well, (laughs) (laughs) well, I got out of public school when I could. So uh, that's the the Internet of Things stuff is a topic for another day. But today we're talking about social networks. Uh, Ah, The Facebooks. uh, Yes. Well, the the Facebook is the most obvious uh, front page of it. but uh, uh, let's. Uh, I, I wanted to start with uh, uh, a definition of over-socialization. And just to make sure that uh, anybody who was still listening after that intro it tunes out immediately <laughs> by realizing that we're uh, total crackpots, uh, the definition comes from a, uh, a particularly prophetic uh, piece of writing called Industrial Society and Its Future uh, by a, a person known in the No Agenda community as Professor Ted. Uh, so the Unabomber for those uninitiated. Well, I wasn't actually going to say that because now they've definitely that you hear that that's the sound of podcast players clicking off all over the place. No, not with our crowd, <laughs> not with the no so, agenda crowd being the first people to hit this podcast. That is like putting out a fresh apple pie. Psychologists use the term socialization to designate the process by which children are trained to think and act as society demands. A person is said to be well socialized if he believes in and obeys the moral code of his society and fits in well as a functioning part of that society. The moral code of our society is so demanding that no one can think, feel, and act in a completely moral way. For example, we're not supposed to hate anyone, yet almost everyone hates somebody at some time or another. 
whether he admits it to himself or not. Some people are so highly socialized that the attempt to think, feel, and act morally imposes a severe burden on them. In order to avoid feelings of guilt, they continually have to deceive themselves about their own motives and find moral explanations for feelings and actions that in reality have a non-moral origin. This is what Professor Ted refers to as over-socialization. And uh, there were no social networks back in 1996 when he penned this paper. Uh, but uh, that that sentiment, the, the sentiment that uh, society is imposing this moral code on you and and you are that, that people are tearing themselves up trying to fit with the moral code. Uh, that sentiment is being stoked by social networks. In, in an unhealthy way. Well, it definitely is. That's where this outrage culture comes from. It's because you're trying to find the reason to make what is trying to be done, get done, right? You're taking, we need to get all guns off the street. We're going to use our, the social high horse that you're on. Like, well, guns are bad. Children are getting killed. We need to do this. And you, everybody needs to fall in line, which was a much harder thing to do when everybody was just living a normal non-digital life where you couldn't be easily tracked and you didn't normally talk to hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands, millions of people that your ideas are now going out to if you're on a Facebook or Twitter now. Exactly. The, the, uh, throughout human history, we have been hardwired to uh, mentally mentally hardwired to interact with a tribe, your, your local tribe, the total number of people that you have interactions with is, uh, sociologists say is about 150 people. Uh, and, uh, ultimately you, you run into the problem with social networks, Facebook, for example, uh, you, by signing up with Facebook, you are suddenly being thrust into a tribe of 2 billion people. And it's no wonder this isn't healthy. Well, people have, again, this is why I kind of look at a lot of different things and you try to break it down to a much simpler manner. What goes on in your house isn't necessarily what goes on in the house next door, or the house next door to that. Every house kind of has their own set of rules. And that's how it was much more so before these social networks came up, because there's a lot of things people just wouldn't talk about. For the longest time you heard the it's unpolite to talk about religion in public company. It's un it's just not right to talk about sex. It's not right to talk about so many different things, but what was going on in your house, th those were your set of rules and nobody really ever called anything out. And people I think got along a whole lot better. Now the problem is everybody, because of this great worldwide system that everybody is participating, well, not everybody's participating in social networks. A lot of people are. Sir Bemrose here is not on Facebook, <laughs> not on Twitter. So you, maybe you're much healthier mentally because of that. But because of these social networks, the effect on that is when you have these big movements of the day, whatever they are, people get so pulled in by the emotion of them and they think that everybody should have the same views as they do. Like you said, it used to be you communicated with a tribe. And that was a fairly small amount of people. And usually this was geographically kind of set. And the people in a geographical area usually had similar viewpoints and similar cultures. The real problem, I think, starts coming from the fact where you're now mixing people 
of completely different geological, geographical, I can speak well, areas, and they have completely different ways of life. They have completely different beliefs when it comes to things like religion and what is acceptable. I mean, there are some societies where women can't show their face when they're out in public. They have to be with a man when they go out in public. For people in the United States, that just kind of blows their mind. And when you try to mix these, these, these things worked when they were on their own, when they were kind of separated. But the problem with the whole social concept when you put everybody together is these differences are very ingrained and these differences are such meaningful things to them when it comes down to religion and way of life that you think somebody else is wrong, they think you're wrong, you mix them together, you don't have the happy kumbaya moment, you actually create much more strife and a lot of this outrage culture, I think, comes from this. What do you think? I, I think you just hit on on three topics that uh, that all almost deserve uh, a rant on their own. The first one that you talked about was uh, getting getting global news, and this this uh, almost predates social networks back when uh, when all culture was uh, broadcast culture. It was one way, and it was the twenty four hour news cycle. Uh, I absolutely agree that uh, getting global news is a problem. Now, uh, the number of, say, hurricanes or earthquakes that go on in the world has been largely unchanged for millions of years. Uh, In 200 years ago, you would find out about an earthquake if you lived if you didn't live in an earthquake area, you wouldn't hear about them, except it was just this thing that might have happened to somebody that was an acquaintance of an acquaintance. And if there was, uh, if you did live in an earthquake thing, then maybe you encountered it every 25 years. And now, every time there's an earthquake or a hurricane or a disaster anywhere in the world, you hear about it. And uh, the result is you get to hear about these terrible, terrible things every month. And uh, this becomes a whole lot worse when you uh, when you introduce a hot button topic like, uh, say, gun violence. People have been shooting each other for as long as there have been guns, and people have were killing each other with uh, things that weren't guns long before that. Now, if you're only interacting in your tribe of 150, that sort of thing might happen once every 10 years if you are a particularly violent society. But when you're suddenly being socialized to a tribe of 350 million or 7.5 billion, and you hear about every single person who shoots every other person, in the 24-hour news cycle, you're going to start to think that, oh my gosh, gun control, gun violence is out of control, and that's uh, that's been used to a political effect. Well, yeah, everything is completely amplified to the point to where it's horrible, and I understand that it's a tragedy when a school gets shot up, you know, 17 kids get killed, but I come from the Chicago area where there's hundreds of people. I think the latest stat on a great website called HeyJackass.com, which tracks Chicago violence up to pretty much the minute. (laughs) Like every five hours, somebody is shot in Chicago. Yeah. Every five hours, somebody gets shot. And and with the number of people in the greater Chicago area, how many people are going to help? How many hours are going to have to pass before everybody is shot? A long, long, long time, which is where putting things in perspective comes into play. And I feel bad when I see 17 kids getting killed by a gunman. It's terrible. It is a terrible tragedy. And it, it 
you never want to decrease the tragedy for those involved. But if somebody gets shot in Florida or in Chicago, a hundred years ago, I would never have known about it. And today, I've got people trying to pipe it in through Facebook, through social networks, through 24-hour news cycle every single time. And if you think about them, every time something like that happens, if somebody gets shot every five hours and I'm being interrupted to be told about it, it's going to mess with my head. Yes. And part of this is the way that people react to the things. And on my Random Thoughts podcast, I did a whole episode on bias and covered how emotional bias is the strongest of all. So if you really want to convince somebody of an argument, you go the emotional route. You don't give them facts and figures. That just tires them out. They look glassy-eyed. They roll their eyes. They don't want to hear it. But if you can make an emotional plea, that has much more effect, even if you have zero behind it as far as proof. And what we end up having now, because of this social media society, is that people, mainly I think young kids, especially are the worst, but even people in middle age like us and older have this effect that they get over. And I don't even want to say you can over care about something because I don't want to say I don't care about the 17 kids that got killed. But I think people have to put it in perspective where you can't be so affected by it, so emotionally distraught that you start making bad decisions and your whole your life starts falling apart because of it. I was at a uh, an appointment with an eye doctor not long ago, and one of the girls who was in training, we were talking about it was a nice warm day in Chicago, which was rare at the time of year that it was. And she starts talking about global warming and how much that it really scares her. And I, I held back. I don't know if you would have been proud or not, because I think Sir Ryan Bemrose maybe would have been like, well, you know, that's all bullshit, right? But I held back. And I just kind of nodded my head. Uh, just and to I be felt clear, bad. I, I don't identify as a denier. I am, however, a man of science. And that another show, perhaps, uh, we'll, we'll get into the religion of science. Well, yeah, there's a difference in denying that climate is changing. And there's a question of how much man is actually making that change. But I felt bad because this was obviously an intelligent young lady, which I think she was probably in her early 20s. And was barely paralyzed by fear of what was happening with the climate of the planet. And for me, being somebody, again, who's a man of science, who wants to look into this and does not believe that this is, that this is anywhere near being a settled thing, this just echoed the same way people react to school shootings, how they react to the mosque shooting in Christchurch. All of this stuff is being packaged in such a way to get people outraged to the point of the result of most of this stuff turns out to be, we need to make a change that is going to take something away from you. And that's the scary part to me in this mob mentality. So you mentioned something, you said something about uh, not, not caring about a particular disaster. And then you backpedaled a little bit. And I just wanted to, to hit that. Uh, I, I, from from a I, I'm a very rational man, believe it or not, and uh, from a purely rational perspective, I think it's actually reasonable to not care about a school shooting all the way across the country because that's actually the only way to stay sane. And that doesn't right. mean that you have disdain for it or or that you have any kind of opinion whatsoever. When when they say 
you don't care. I mean, this is not something that should have to take any of my attention. Uh, I'm not involved. I didn't cause it. If it does come to my attention, then I'm sorry. And the appropriate human response is that you feel bad for the victims, but I'm not involved and it doesn't serve any beneficial purpose to convince hundreds of millions of people to all weep simultaneously because when the next thing comes, they're all going to weep simultaneously again. And then the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And pretty soon you keep everybody in a constant emotional loop of feeling bad for one thing or another. And I think we're seeing a lot of that today in social networks. Yes. And which is the real question, I guess, comes down to then is that the reason why we're in this now, is it just because the technology has been created and the way the world has always been, this is why we're in this constant loop? Well, or do you think that people are actually using social media in such a way to push? This is really a no agenda kind of topic to push for the takeover, say, of a one world government, one world control. Is this being done intentionally? Is this outrage culture that we're dealing with where people are over emotional? get overly angry about things like you say that they're not really involved with, you know, you're seeing it on TV, you're seeing it on the internet and having this huge emotional response. Is this just happening naturally due to the way social media works and how everybody's being put together? Or do you think that there's maybe something more to it to where people are using this to intentionally try to change the way the world is working? Well, it would be ridiculous to think that, Anybody that there's nobody out there who's profiting from this trend that you're seeing, but this is this is a social movement uh, of entire society, and uh, no matter what you might think about Big Brother and the Illuminati, and they may be watching, nobody in this world is powerful enough to drive an entire societal movement. This is people. The, the evolution of the technology came together, and uh, the combination of that with uh, people psychologically manipulating things for dollars because uh, don't get me wrong. Mark Zuckerberg is not some bond villain out there twirling his mustache and trying to cause everybody to freak out and be constant f in fear. Mark Zuckerberg did this because originally, because if the story is to be told because he wanted to get laid right. And now he does it because it makes him a lot of money. And he really, I bet you gets laid a lot more than he did in college. I don't want to think about that. <laughs> but when the technology came, when the technology came together for these, uh, they they immediately came with uh, several emergent properties that people have have talked about. You know, the the first one that that came up really quick, and the the best example of this is going to be Xbox Live. Is once you go past 150 people, you don't know who you're talking to. The only thing you know is that it is a screen name and a voice on the other end. Or, or text or whatever. And when that happens, you don't think of that person as human. And, and in particular, you may never, you may interact with that person once and never again. So what you have is an immense amount of anonymity in the tribe. You know that you're going to interact with this person who's not even a person only once, and then you're never going to interact with them again. And this instantly breeds antisocial behavior. Uh, anybody who's played on Xbox Live knows about uh, the the 14-year-old with the high squeaky voice who will tell you all of the creative things that they're going to do with your grandma while they're teabagging your corpse <laughs> in Call of Duty. 
And uh, that kind of antisocial behavior is completely enabled because you know that no matter how many games you play, you are probably never going to interact with that person ever again. So they can get away with it. There are no consequences to being antisocial. Even if you do get put into a game with them again are you even going to remember who they are all it was was a screen name full of x's and dashes and numbers and how much do you think the video game culture has kind of tided over into all the other things like facebook and that because of the fact that in these video games usually these big multiplayer games you are trying to usually kill the guy on the other end well i don't think this this phenomenon is absolutely not restricted to video games in fact i don't think it bled over from video game culture i think it emerged simultaneously uh in other places uh if you want a non-video game example look no farther than twitter if if you are looking for a social network that epitomizes the concepts of rage and envy look go no farther than just the firehose of twitter you can see the most horrible hateful things even from from celebrities who should know better uh john c dvorak is constantly talking about uh tweets from uh, the uh, the big producer whose name suddenly escapes me i'm sorry but there's no shortage of celebrities that are but, with this stuff yeah. like Alyssa milano if you look at her twitter and it's funny when you have these celebrities who do nothing but spew hate and then point at the other side exactly with their they're spewing hate yes every everything about twitter twitter exists for for three purposes uh the first one is it's extremely useful if you're a celebrity and you want people to worship you the second is an ex- it's an extremely useful place to worship a celebrity if you are the kind of person who does that. And the third is it provides a platform for anybody anywhere to shout into a crowded room that has so much noise that nobody will hear. Them. Yes. And I don't need Twitter for that. I have this podcast. Right. This this is what this podcast is here for finding a reason to yell at somebody. Twitter yelling, which is part of what I think makes tri- Twitter completely just noise is the fact that once you start following a certain amount of people, you can't keep up. So it's no longer a communication device. It is no longer a way to interact with people. It's kind of like what morning radio used to be where you hopped, it was a three hour show and you hopped in the car and you heard 20 minutes out of the show. And that was just the way it is. Twitter, you're hopping in and out and that's all there is to it. It's unless you're very, selective if you're somebody that can go on twitter and literally follow like 20 of your friends then you could probably use twitter in a reasonable manner to keep in touch with those 20 people assuming they're paying attention but but for that you can use a a bulletin board or text messages or those those 20 people are inside of your tribe yes that means those are their people this this is not something you need a social network for you can keep track of your tribe in any way that you want and if you really this is something i've done a couple of times on twitter i highly recommend it for everybody go on if you're on twitter and especially if you have a lot of people following you and i think right now mine's a little over a thousand people crazy people i'm sure and i appreciate them following and i try to interact with people who are real and you know want to have a decent conversation but go on to Twitter and just post a message asking people to respond in some way if they read that tweet. I would guess if you have like a thousand people following you and you don't ask, make tell people not to retweet it because then you might get people that are outside of your right. followers. No retweets, but say respond to me in some way, whether it's a like, whether it's replying, give an email address, whatever you want to do. Say if you if you really can do one of those things, not more, 
and see how much interaction you get. I would bet if you have a thousand people following you, you would be really, really lucky to get more than 20 to 40 people interacting. I would be surprised. That number goes up significantly if you know these people outside of Twitter. But again, then then they're part of your tribe. Uh, another problem that I think uh, that absolutely emerges out of uh, the, the social networks, and this is something that has got a lot of ink and a lot of talking and a lot of hand-wringing, is the idea of the bubble. In your bubble, on any social network, you can pick and choose who you decide to interact with uh, to, to a degree that was never possible before in human history. Uh, you can follow the people that you're interested in. You can follow the people who are exactly like you and anybody who makes you feel out of your comfort zone or you don't like or you're not interested in, you block them. And the, the very idea that you can decide to not have any social interaction with another person is something that in human history, we've never had this power. It, the, wor- the best you could possibly do before social networks was you could avoid them. You could cross the street if they came walking toward you. But the idea that in the medium in which you communicate, you can have a guaranteed way of preventing them from interacting with you in any way is that that is a power that we have never had before. And a lot of people can't handle. There was a, do you ever watch the show black mirror? No, but I'm aware of what the show is. One of the episodes that really stuck with me was one called white Christmas. And uh, yeah, I, yeah. Okay. I I understand it's a cliche at this point for a podcaster to bring up black mirror. It's, it's different, (laughs) but uh, in white Christmas, there was the concept that everybody had implants in their brain and in their eyeballs. And they used the implants for uh, it, it was a replacement for your smartphone or tablet. You could like tap the side of your head and uh, it would bring up web pages information. But uh, one of the the really nefarious use of this technology was to, you could block somebody. And what it meant was uh, that even in the real world, your implant would actually erase that person from your view so that that person couldn't interact with you. And uh, uh, the the worst punishment that anybody could have in that was no longer death. It was being blocked by everybody. And that just goes right back to Star Trek, right? Klingons, when you were shunned, I mean, if you ever watch Star Trek, that's like one of the biggest, most you know, memorable things that you've, I've ever remember seeing on Star Trek as a kid is when the Klingons would shun somebody, they'd all put their arms on their chest and spin around like you no longer exist to me. But, but you don't have to go as far as Star Trek for that. You only have to go as far as Facebook or Twitter or YouTube. Uh, the concept is known as deplatforming. Suddenly, uh, somebody who is considered not normal, somebody who is a uh, disreputable citizen, can be shunned from the entire society. And when the social network is your society, uh, being deplatformed is it, it? It is literally exile from society, which. Uh, in, in historical times, uh, that has been the thing that you do to somebody when death is not enough. For a creature, humans are social creatures. They need social interaction with other humans. And when all of society is done online, uh, the very idea that some Silicon Valley company could come by and say, you are suddenly cut off from your entire society 
is worse than the death penalty. Yes. And people are using the excuse now that something, you know, Twitter's a private company. They can do what they want, which is to a point true. But here, here's the question for you. Do you find it to be all right for the ability to exist, say, on Twitter for a single person, say me, to block you? I find it abhorrent that that Twitter and Facebook and these platforms have become our society. So well, I do, too. Uh, but I think there's a big difference between a single person blocking somebody that's maybe harassing them as opposed to a, pl- uh, a whole platform saying in this case, you know, Twitter or Facebook that says, you know, Alex Jones doesn't belong here anymore. I, I think that uh, the ability for an individual person to not want to react, interact with another individual person is uh a perfectly normal and human reaction, but there's, there's two levels of blocking. Uh, one of the ways that we interact, especially in the no agenda community is on IRC and, uh, every IRC client has a concept known as ignore. Uh, and what that means is if I ignore you, then it's like, I'm shutting off my speakers for your voice and you can shout all you want and I'll never hear it. And the ability to ignore somebody long predates, social networks. It's, it is trying not to be in the same room, but that is a reasonable way of not having to deal with somebody's bullshit. Uh, blocking on Twitter, to my understanding, it, it goes even farther and it, uh, it prevents that person from saying things that you say publicly. And that would be like sending the police over to forcibly put earplugs into somebody when you stand up on stage and shout to a crowd. And that goes over the line. The question is, should there be any kind of oversight, which I think we're both more usually on the get government out of everything. But the problem I think we have as an internet culture is that usually the alternative platforms where everybody could say, you know, there's other Twitters. We use a Mastodon, which is an open source type Twitter uh, for the no agenda show. There is Gab. There's other sites that are like Twitter, but the main people, you know, the main people that you would normally interact with aren't on there. The amount of people that are on those platforms are so much less that technically, yes, there's an alternative. But how do we deal with something like a Twitter to where that gets to be where everybody is? We've had problems for years in this country with monopolies and stuff like that. How do you deal with the Twitter that gets, I don't want to use the cliche, too big to fail, but in this case, Twitter is so big that that is where the eyeballs are. That's where the public as a whole is. Do you, how do you make sure that they are acting? So the phenomenon that you're describing is, is something that in social networks is known as the network effect, and it's an emergent property of social networks. And basically the way the way that it works is, the more people are on a social network, the more people want to be on the social network because you always want, whenever you're on a network, you need to invite your friends and they want to invite their friends and so on. And therefore, if two social networks have, uh, you know, 100 people and 200 people, the one with 200 people is obviously where people want to go because there's more people there and it left on their own the larger one will get larger and the smaller one will get smaller. And as long as there are social networks, it's going to be very difficult to, to work against the idea 
that you want to connect with as many people as possible. And that, uh, I guess what I'm saying is that as long as we have the ability to communicate with the global world, everybody's going to want to be connected to the global world. It's a, a fear of missing out. People do are not good at disconnecting. So, should we allow Twitter to be our de facto public space? I, I don't know that it's a matter. I, I don't know that that's something that we have the ability to prevent. Uh, I, I think it is abhorrent that that Twitter has become the public space, and uh, all of the arguments that say, "Well, Twitter shouldn't be allowed to censor everybody," take uh, as an axiom that uh, this is the public commons of our time, and the arguments that oh, Twitter is a private company and they can do whatever they want uh, deny the idea that Twitter has become the public forum of our time. And uh, I don't have the uh, the real solution to whether or not Twitter should be allowed to do things, but uh, whenever a company has gotten way too big in, in the past, the the concept of antitrust is, is where we've turned, and uh, the idea of breaking up the company. Now, if you break up a network, then you lose the network effect, and suddenly if you're in on chunk A and I'm in chunk B, then we can't communicate. There's a you mentioned Mastodon, which has a it uses a technology that I think could be the solution to this, uh, which is called federation. And uh, the way Mastodon works is that I can set up my server and you can set up your server and you can run your server however you want. You can deplatform anybody you want and I can set up my run my server however I want and I can deplatform anybody. And then our servers talk to each other. And that is where you get the network effect and the global network without having any one company have the power to control the entire communication. Right, which makes sense and is a much better way to do it, but it's getting then the users onto a system like that once Twitter has already existed. You're you're fighting the network effect. Yes. That is the biggest issue there. Well, I think I think if your goal is to get people off of Twitter, then right now your best ally is Twitter because they are doing everything they can to make it clear that this is no longer a platform for open expression. And uh, that is that is going to be the way that people get off is that they look at this and say, can I say what I want here? No, because they're going to censor me. And then they look for other options. That's how you do it. Which should be their downfall because all the laws that exist in the United States, at least, I don't know world law, I'm not an expert, but usually to be considered a service provider, you cannot be an editor, meaning you can't decide who gets, <clears throat> excuse me, you can't decide who gets to. Sp- uh, you're, what you're talking about is uh, there's a law in the United States called uh, the Communications Decency Act, which was a terrible law that tried to impose morality onto the Internet. And actually, uh, the law, I believe, predates the Internet, and it tried to impose morality on uh, television and telephone and the, the communication of the time. But uh, the, the act being full of uh, a whole lot of censoring type things that say that you shall thou shalt not say fuck on the uh, television uh, that law had one small section called uh, section 230 section 230 of the cda and you'll see that uh, mentioned a lot of places and that one is called the safe harbor provision of the law uh, what that says is uh, companies will not be liable for things that their users place on there so long as the company is fairly and uh, unbiased in 
in what they put on it. Basically, if, if the users are generating the content and the company is not filtering it, then the company is not liable. But as soon as the company starts to filter the content, then the company can become liable for any content that gets through. And that one section informed the growth of a great deal of user-generated content in the entire internet for a long time. And uh, I would like to see that law tested against the current deplatforming phenomenon. Oh, I would as well, because that definitely takes something like Twitter deciding who they're going to deplatform, and they can say what they want. Oh, yes. The massive amount of data that I've seen all shows that Twitter is like 95% more likely to ban, deplatform, shadow ban somebody with a conservative viewpoint over a liberal viewpoint. I don't care what side of the they have publicly said that there is certain there they are filtering their content and they are allowing certain content and they are disallowing other content. And that to me is a very clean cut violation of section 230. Right, which should make them responsible for all content on their site, which, like you said, I would like to see that. There is an epic amount of hate content on that site. At the size that they are, it would be impossible to filter completely. And so they're being very selective about it. Uh, Some of the hate content, the the producer that I couldn't remember earlier, uh, his name is Rob Reiner. And, uh, yes, uh, J- JCD has meathead. Yeah. John, John C. Dvorak has a hard on for this guy and, uh, follows <laughs> his tweets with zeal because every single one of them is some kind of unhinged, addled, hate fueled rant against the, the tyranny of the right and Donald Trump in particular, which is where dialogue stops. Yes. I think anybody, if you're willing to have a dialogue, you're willing to listen to the other side and you haven't made up your mind. The minute anybody has made up their mind that no matter what you're going to say, you're wrong because you like this guy or you're wrong because you're on this side or you affiliate with this party, the dialogue's already completely over. Oh, yes. Now, what what we're normally we're talking about here with the social media, most of this stuff, people might be like, ah, who fucking cares? It all happens online. It's all happening just, you know, within the sphere of Twitter or Facebook. Oh, you, you dropped an F-bomb. We, we are we're not clean on iTunes anymore. Oh, no, we better have the uh, we better put that warning up there. Yep. But this is starting to go into the real world. And China right now is using a social score system. It's been talked about in my podcast, the No Agenda Show, where they're taking things you do online and offline, and they are putting together a social score. Now, things they're blocking people from doing are getting on airplanes, getting on high-speed trains. My favorite, though, of all of these things were if your social score was bad enough, I don't know exactly how bad it has to get, the government changes the ringtone of your phone to shame you. That That is pretty awesome. Uh, you know that this... Uh this concept, uh, China didn't come up with it, though. The, the original concept of applying a score to every citizen uh, it was, was done long before China. Uh, there's, a, there's another country where every single citizen is, is assigned a score, and uh, if your score is too low, then you can't uh, get a job, you can't get an apartment, you can't apply for a loan, you were going to have uh, a lot of trouble, you, you can't lease a car. 
uh, pretty much anything that involves money uh, and and a lot of things that don't and absolutely shouldn't uh, can be denied to you if your score is low. And uh, the country is uh, the United States, and that score is going to be your credit rating. Now, why are we freaking out about the authoritarian Chinese government and not this system in the United States? Well, because it's private companies doing it. And, uh, well, if they're private companies, then uh, it must be okay. But we already had a discussion that maybe private companies that have so much power they can behave like the government, maybe we shouldn't be giving them that much power. And that is kind of the problem. When we're going to the social network concept, which is you're giving these networks complete access to your life. You're giving them more information. When Facebook first started, I remember whether it was bullshit or not. I remember somebody that worked for the FBI or CIA basically saying, thanks for doing our job, man. We used to actually have to investigate you to find out who your friends were, where you were on a Friday night, what kind of you know beer you prefer. Now we just pull up your Facebook profile. There, there was a great show on TV a few years ago called Person of Interest, uh, which great Jim Caviezel. Yes, and uh, and the the guy from Lost, uh, the the most understated actor. That show, the the premise of the show was that there is a uh, this the show started in about 2011, I think, and the premise was that there is a huge computer out there that is collecting all of the information anywhere and sorting and uh, collating that information in order to determine some really scary stuff like, uh, you know, where, where you're going to be in a particular day. And it, it was basically every, every science fiction fantasy uh, scare story about big brother and the overreach of technology all wrapped into one. And I don't think that show is science fiction anymore. There, there was one point in it uh, during the first season when the somebody, uh, the the lead character, basically claimed that uh, the the whole reason why Facebook was started was because they needed a way to collect more information on every single human, and uh, they thought about trying to use surveillance to do it. But somebody had the bright idea: well, why don't we just ask them to enter all of that information on their own? I mean, who would have thought that would have worked? And now we realize that uh, we, we don't need Facebook isn't a tool of of this mysterious machine that knows everything about you. They are the machine. They are the machine. And it goes so much further than what you decide to put on Facebook because you're not on Facebook. I, but I read an article the I, other day have, that was about I have never had an account on Facebook. And I assure you, they have a profile of me. Well, there was an article I read the other day that was about Sharenting, I think they called it, which was kids pissed off that their parents have been posting pictures of them as babies, toddlers. And this is going to be a whole nother legal matter at some <laughs> point when kids start suing their parents for sharing their photos without their consent before they can talk. I mean, this is going to be an interesting thing, but this is where this kind of surveillance and surveillance is a whole nother podcast. But this is where the willing surveillance, the willing putting out there of every part of our lives is getting to be a scary thing. When I signed up through Facebook, I understood exactly what it was, and I treated it that way, meaning the only photos I shared, everything on my Facebook page, and I believe it still is, is completely public because I know it's completely public. It's like me starting my own website. 
and putting stuff out there. It's like doing the podcast. I want it to get out there. I have never been under the impression that there was a way in Facebook or any other social media site to click a certain setting and be like, hey, I can only share this photo with my friends. Nobody else will be able to see it. That's insane. <laughs> the privacy online is is a myth that we should definitely explore in another episode. So you started this saying uh, the topic was uh, social networks over socialization and why creating global communities doesn't work. I, I think that uh, you know, I, the, the over socialization part uh, I, I don't know that we got into the psychology of it uh, all that well, but uh, do you think that creating global communities could work? I think it depends what your expectations of those communities are. I have ran communities in the past. You know, I think the no agenda community kind of works because you're bringing to people together that have something in common. I've ran communities in the past for country music artists. They worked really, really well, and they had people from around the world, but again, they had a basis that they all had something in common. I don't believe there is a possibility of doing a global community of everybody. I, I really do think you need, you know, whether you want to call it, you know, this whole thing about nationalism now is a bad thing. Although everybody likes when the World Cup comes around to root for their team, that's nationalism. It's become a bad thing to be proud of the country that you're from. You know, I don't know. I grew up where I was proud to come from the country I came from. I was proud at the time to be from the Chicago area, you know, a White Sox fan. There were things that you used that you had in common that these communities grew upon and you had this commonality. I don't necessarily believe you can make this work by taking everybody in the world and going, you're all together now, go. Every example of a functioning community that you just gave was was all built around uh, a particular idea, a certain podcast, a certain country music singer, uh, uh, even even a certain team, although that's iffy. But when you build around a small group, and especially if you have uh, the the people opt in, say around a forum or an IRC channel, you're you're going to naturally develop a tribe. And uh, again, back to the 150 people number. As long as the number of people involved is under 150. You know, or, or better yet, under about eighty, because everybody knows somebody outside the the community. Um, the The number of active people is small. You are going to have a fantastic tight knit community, but uh, you know, around a say a baseball team, you're going to have tens of thousands of people who are interested. And if your f- active forum has tens of thousands of people, you're not going to be able to remember. Uh, who each of those people are and uh, what their interests are and whether or not they uh, like the when you gently rib them or or how many children they have. You, you can't learn any of that, not, not about 10,000 people. So that I, I really think is the cutoff. And when you have a really large community, the dynamic is completely different. Every time that you interact with somebody, it's the first time you've interacted with them, even if you've done it before, because you just can't remember. The problems of antisocial behavior, the problems of, of being in a bubble and choosing who you think that you want to interact with and not interacting with anybody outside your bubble, uh, these problems form when there's so many people out there that you can't possibly interact with all of them. And... So we have to, you know, we, we have to build our bubbles. We and and we have the ability to do terrible things. And if you try to create a community out of everybody, 
then that's the only interaction you're going to have. And I think that that's the biggest problem with the big social networks. Everybody wants to be on them because of their fear of missing out. And because, oh, all my friends are on this network and therefore uh, I need to be on it too. But as soon as you have that many people, you fall into your bubble and you have to deal with antisocial people. And then to deal with the antisocial people, they have to come up with techniques and and you have to be able to block people and you have to be able to deplatform people. And pretty soon you have substituted your local community for the one you've created for yourself online. And I don't think that's healthy. Well, I also believe that the larger a community gets, the much more likely effect is the mob mentality, meaning if you're a community of 80 people that talks to each other and kind of everybody knows each other somewhat, if somebody says something out of line, usually you're not going to have everybody else jumping on them and ganging up against them. Usually you, you are exactly right. And, and I think I just nailed the, what the difference is. The difference is in a small tribe, you know that every single one of those people is a person right in a large tribe. Every one of them is a screen name. They're the other. They are not human. They're not a person. And therefore, you can get away with doing any kind of thing you want that you would never do to somebody that you considered a person. Well, and I know you're speaking metaphorically there, but I think when a community gets large enough, there are actually entities on there which are no longer real people. There are bots <laughs> that are literally just there you, to... You are absolutely to, correct. And this is part of you know the stoking outrage. And if you don't, which is why... If, if somebody gives you a snarky comment or really hits you with something on Twitter and you look and it's like they've got one follower, then you just block and move on. Yeah. You know, that's probably not a real well, person, I, I, but I'm not going to block. I'm going to ignore. Yes. There, there's, <laughs> be like, there's I'm done. But that is an interesting thing because once it's large enough to where you can't keep track of everybody, there really does have the larger possibility that some of those accounts aren't real or they're from a troll farm or they're there to specifically create strife. There are websites. I don't know how much I believe them, but there are websites that try to guess what percentage of a user's Twitter (laughs) followers are real. And if you look at the people that have millions of followers, if you go look at like a Taylor Swift, or if you go look at, uh, I'd rather not. um, Come on, Taylor Swift's hot. But if you go look at one of these big celebrities who have millions of followers, there's a really good chance a much larger amount than 20 or 30%. Some of them I've seen over 50% where they guess are not actual accounts. And this is done for a variety of reasons. A lot of people were getting paid more money to do advertising and stuff like that based upon their Twitter followers because for a while people were completely insane and didn't know those could be bought. But you have to take that into account when you're dealing with something like a Twitter or Instagram, which is there are some accounts that aren't real people. There are people like me who have, you know, 20 different Twitter accounts because over the years I've had one for my personal that I use. I've had one, you know, for my Random Thoughts podcast. I've had one for the Man Cave Confidential podcast I've done. I've set up a bunch of Twitter accounts for different businesses in order to, you know, send out their weekly menu to the people that want to follow that. But you can create more than one Twitter account, and you have to take that into effect, too, and just realize that sometimes you just have no idea what's going on. I want to leave you with uh, just one, one thought on that topic, and that is that when they are behind the screen, 
And when they're not a member of your tribe and therefore not your, your psychology doesn't internalize them as a person, what is the difference between an actual electronic bot that resides on a server somewhere and a person who behaves like they like a bot? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. And I hate to tell you, I think we're all just running in a simulation that's running on Adam Curry's computer. Just saying. I, I think that's likely. We, we may all be NPCs. None of us are real, but some of us not being real still do better podcasts than others. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of Grumpy Old Bands. I hope it gives an idea of the kind of topics we're going to be talking about and in the manner we're going to be trying to talk about them. Do you have any parting thoughts? I I have lots of parting thoughts, but you're going to have to tune into future <laughs> podcasts for that. Yeah. If you want to get a hold of us, we'll we'll be setting that crap up. Like right now, grumpyoldbens.com. There's nothing on it. There will be. So hopefully if you're listening to this sometime in the future, there'll be like 100,000 episodes there. But to, hey, we're already out of beta. We are. So from uh, an undisclosed location on the left coast of the United States. I'm Sir Ryan Bemrose. And from just outside of beautiful Chirac, where I really could use some barbecue, I am Darren O'Neill. Until next time, thanks for listening.